In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have many new friends with us this morning for baptism, so it's great to have you with us. Um, If you haven't been in an Anglican church before, um, you may realize that uh, we have read four scriptures this morning, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, one from the Psalms, and then from the Gospel. We do that every week so that we cover all parts of the Bible as we go through the year. And uh, these texts, we don't pick at random. Actually, all Anglican churches on this Sunday morning are actually looking at all these same texts, along with the Catholics and the Lutherans, are all using this same set of scriptures. And you probably saw in these scriptures, there's a constant theme there, isn't there? About sin and forgiveness is a theme throughout all those. Well, this morning we're going to look at the Old Testament text, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you really really mess up. Now, I'm not talking about looking for your cell phone while you're talking on it to your friend. I'm not talking about looking for your glasses while they're on your nose. I'm talking about what do you do when you make a major life mistake, either through anger, through a miscalculation, or maybe looking back on it, what now seems to you was a moment of sheer madness. Well, that's the question that confronts us from the Old Testament text that we read this morning. Now, let me invite you to take out this blue sheet. I think it'll help you follow what we're doing here this morning. So take that out, and I will reference some of these scriptures as we go through, but I will not read them all so that I put them there on the handout in front of you. Now, the story from 2 Samuel 11 actually begins with a marvelous man, King David. In the whole of the Old Testament, there's only one other person that's even like him, and that would be Joseph, by the way. David, you see, was chosen to be a picture of King Jesus in the New Testament. Many people here are familiar with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is quoted by the New Testament writers as a psalm about King Jesus. But when it was written, it was actually in its first instance about King David of the Old Testament. And our text this morning is about King David. David was a man approved by God himself. That's a pretty fancy report card. He was proved by God himself. God said this, I have no other man like him. He has a heart like mine. He will do all my will. Yet, this morning's text, at the start of it, in 2 Samuel 11, records one of the biggest failures ever of God's people. David had lusted after the wife of one of his soldiers, And while Uriah was out there risking his life to fight a battle that David should have been out there fighting himself, David stayed home and he was sleeping with Uriah's wife. Now when Bathsheba informs David that now she is pregnant with the king's child, David arranges to have Uriah killed in battle so he can take Bathsheba into the palace and make it look like there'd never been adultery at all. 
Friends, this is what we call a major league failure. David had not only committed adultery, he committed first-degree murder to cover it up. And his horrible failure would ever after mark God's chosen man. Now, all scriptures are given for our instruction, so let's see this morning what we can learn for ourselves from David's monumental failure, one that would not only impact him, but his family, and in fact, the whole nation of Israel. Okay, let's do some careful thinking first, okay? We acknowledge that sin is sin. From one aspect, all sin is equal. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point is guilty of all of it. You see, none of us will ever get into heaven by saying, Well, at least my sin is not as bad as his. And the Lord Jesus reminds us that to have lust in our heart is to commit adultery. All sin is equal in this way. Every sin separates us from fellowship with God. Every sin reveals that our hearts are inclined away from God and his love and his holiness. But all sin does not have equal consequences. To lust with your mind is to defile your heart and requires cleansing from God. But to sleep with another man's wife not only defiles your heart, but her heart, and hurts not only you, but her, and her husband, and her children, and her family, and on, and on, and on. To be angry with your brother, the Lord says, is tantamount to murder. But you can be cleansed and forgiven of your anger. But if we actually carry on and murder our brother, the consequences are irreversible, whether we seek for forgiveness or not. I'll come back to that point in a minute. Now, for the moment, here is the summary that I believe God wants us to set fully into our minds this morning from this text. Because of his sin, David's life was irreversibly changed and not for the better. But all was not irreparably lost. I'll say that again. David's life was irreversibly changed, but all was not irreparably lost. So in our text this morning, in 2 Samuel, Nathan comes to David after he has committed this horrible crime, this terrible sin, and Nathan says, Stop pretending, David. You are the man. You are the one who has done this awful thing. And there is much that we can learn from David's response to Nathan. 
From the pain of David's contrition, I believe there are seven lessons here that are critically valuable to us when we too mess up in a major league way. Here's the first one. Confess your sin openly. Stop pretending. Words like, well, it's not so bad. Well, at least I didn't. Nobody's going to find out anyway. Those kind of words have no place here. It was sin. Call it what it is. Above all else, it was sin against a holy God. It was a betrayal of the one who has done nothing except your good since the moment that you were born. There can be no path of restoration until we speak the truth about what has happened. In our psalm this morning, Psalm 32, we read, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave my iniquity. Now the second lesson is this. Get reconnected to God. David wrote, Restore me, O God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me get back where I was with you before all this happened. Every single sin is alike in this way. It is sin against God, and it breaks our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So after confession, the second most necessary step is to restore that relationship with God. But thirdly, you see, some sins are also transgressions not only against God, but against other people. So the third step must be we need to set things right. That is where things can be set right. If you've stolen another's property, it can be returned. If you sullied another person's reputation, efforts can be made to clear a good name. Now, this morning in our text, the life of an innocent child was on the line. In the providence of God, that child was suffering because of David's sin. And here, actually, there was very little that David could do about the situation. But he did what he could. He fasted and he prayed all night, lying in the dust. With some sins, however, there are consequences which are irreversible. And this is precisely why God says, don't do them. God is not some heavenly killjoy. He's not sitting up in heaven whose desire and longing is to keep you from satisfying your desires. You see, all of God's laws are good and for our good. He longs for you and me to be prosperous 
and happy. But he will not suspend the laws of cause and effect simply because we want to be stupid. You see, God's laws are there to protect us from a whole host of horribly negative consequences, which must necessarily accompany some sins. You see, through our sin, some things can be brought into play which can never be stuffed back into the box. David was a wise man. He understood this. However painful, David understood that from henceforth he would need to readjust his life accordingly. Now there may be some major mess-ups in our life which may introduce irreversible changes into our lives. There are some things which restitution cannot set right. Try as he might, David could not bring Uriah back from the dead. Though when he came to his senses, you know he would have if he could. There are many choices and failures in our life that with all your heart, you may wish to take back. But you cannot. So wisdom and maturity bid you to accept that fact and move forward from here. The question is, how will you go forward? Well, on that score, alas, David didn't get very high marks. David wisely understood that he must accept the consequences of his sin, but get this, friends, he never seemed to fully accept God's forgiveness of his sin at the same time while going forward. I asked Kelby to play again that song that we had last Sunday as well as this, Let No One Trap in sin remain in the lie of inward shame. In fact, it seems that David, in his guilt, or perhaps it was fear of being called a hypocrite, was actually hindered from doing the very thing he needed to do. Nathan came to David and he told him, he said, the sword, he said, Your sin has been forgiven. Nevertheless, the sword will never depart from your house. Here's, I believe, how that came about in his life. If we read on into 2 Samuel 13, we read about Amnon. Amnon. Amnon was David's oldest son. Amnon was the son of David and Ahinoam, who was David's first wife. Now, presumably, Amnon was old enough at the time of David's sin with Bathsheba to have an adult understanding of all the evil that his father had just committed. 
And clearly, David had spent very little time instructing his son in the dangers of unchecked lust. For Amnon, you see, was lusting big time. He was lusting after his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar and her full brother, Absalom, were the children of David and David's third wife. Thus Amnon, encouraged by his wicked friends, rather than guided by the good advice that should have come from his father, set a trap for Tamar. And he raped her. And then, to add insult to injury, he threw her out like a piece of garbage. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, was left to pick up the pieces. Yeah, I know, this sounds like an episode of SVU. Absalom, as you can imagine, was seething mad. Day after day, Absalom watched and he waited for his father, the king, and the chief minister of justice in the kingdom. He waited for his father to do something. He waited for David to punish Amnon. But David did nothing. Not even so much as a word of rebuke. Why? You know why. You can hear Amnon's response in your own ears. Well, look, Daddy-o, at least she wasn't somebody else's wife. David, I suspect, could hear that response too. So he said nothing. And he denied justice to Tamar, to his family, and to the nation. Ultimately, bitterness boils up in Absalom's heart until he decides to take justice into his own hand. And Absalom has Amnon killed. But even then, David does nothing except ignore Absalom. David was completely paralyzed from doing what he must do and what he needed to do by his own guilt and shame. After years of all this drama, Absalom finally concludes David was unfit to reign over the nation. So Absalom plans a coup and in a carefully crafted propaganda campaign, he persuades the nation that only he is fit to give justice to the people. Oh, if I were king, I would give judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Friends, when we really mess up, if the consequences of the consequences of our sin are not to consume the rest of our life, it is essential that we start 
afresh spiritually. If we continue to let guilt and shame rule our lives, we will be hindered from doing what is right. And then the consequences of our sin will multiply and go on and on and on. Receiving fully the grace of God is essential to our restoration. Well, the years passed and the storms swirled around David's head. Near the end, he began to receive the grace of God. He had received grace to acknowledge his sin. He'd received grace to realize that he must accept the consequences of his sin. But the grace he needed was to face his own guilt and believe God had cleansed him from it. As David learned to accept the grace of God, he also began to accept the fact that the pain of the consequences of his sin was the channel by which God would work restoration and holiness in his life. On the day that Absalom's rebellion succeeded, David was actually driven out of Jerusalem. On that day, many of David's old enemies gloated at his fall. And there was one particularly obnoxious little fellow by the name of Shimei, kind of a golem sort of creature. And he ran alongside David as he and his band were fleeing Jerusalem, throwing dirt clods at them and cursing their name. Get out, you man of blood! You're a worthless man, David! What was left of David's supporters wanted to go over and kill him. He was insulting God's king, wasn't he? But David's response is very instructive. 2 Samuel 16. And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. You see, at last, David was beginning to come to a right understanding of himself, of his sin, and his consequences, and the grace of God. Through his pain, God had brought David to a place where God could work deeper healing in his soul. Okay, this is not an easy message this morning. Okay, this is not a hallmark card with puppies and flowers and tea and sympathy. These are the scriptures chastening us as a father who loves his children. These are the scriptures doing for us the very thing that David failed to do for his own children. Yet in this message, there is also this seventh lesson, and it is the lesson of hope. In the story, we find God doing what only God can do, and that is God bringing good out of something very evil. 2 Samuel 12, 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, or peace. 
And the Lord loved him, and he sent a a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. You see, out of this horrible mess of adultery, murder, guilt, and failure, a little baby is born who is loved by God, little Jedidiah, who would grow up to be the most glorious king of Israel, Solomon. Now, how does God do that? I don't have a clue. I can't tell you. But I know God can do it. Your sin and my sin may throw us into places that seem to have irreversible and painful consequences. So we must press on. But that does not mean that God will stop using our lives. He will continue to do so if we have the one indispensable quality that marks all seven of these principles, and that is humility. Let's run this story backwards as we close. Suppose when Nathan had come to David, David had said, I'm the king of Israel. What right have you to tell me things like that? I can do whatever I want. You see, God's grace came to David because David humbled himself and attempted to make what restitution he could. He spent long years being humbled by the consequences of his sin. And through the pain of it all, God was remolding the inner man. For you see, the source of David's sin was his heart, and God was purging and cleansing and changing that heart. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we would humble ourselves to receive the grace of God. Wherever we are today, I pray that God will work newness of life in your soul, in our souls, and that God may use all our previous failings and sins as an instrument for transformation into the likeness of Christ. Amen.